0: Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly Writers Club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the Classes tab.
1: This is Andrea. And this is Allison.
0: And we've been thinking about why we do this podcast. Because we started this business and then we realized this is a shitload of work. taking us away from other things we want to do even just being with our family and having another job that makes money to pay for things i started going through old emails just to sort of be inspired like should we keep going and should we continue to do this and i ran across this email from a listener his name is larry silver and he sent us this
1: i listen to your podcasts and i'm amazed at how you and the others are able to strip down to your bare emotional selves you are exposed, vulnerable, and from my point of view, not safe. By doing so, however, you reassure your listeners that your inner demons are not so different from theirs. It's a cathartic journey for both you and listeners like me.
0: Thank you, Larry. I mean, I think when he sent that, he probably had no idea that that was going to be inspiration to sort of keep us going. But the other thing that is going to be inspiration for keeping us going is money. We're going to spend the next few minutes talking about money. And asking for money. We've asked you to support us, but we only have a handful of people that get off their wallet and say, we're going to send money. Why? Why are those people giving money and
1: why aren't you? I heard this pitch by Sam Harris where he spent several minutes on the Waking Up podcast asking for money. The first thing he said, which I thought was really beautiful and we're just going to steal those words... If giving even a few dollars causes you any financial stress, then this appeal is not directed at you. But for everyone else, we are going to tell you why it's important for you to give, why we want you to give, why we want you to be a part of this movement.
0: Let's see. We started writing class radio because why? We wanted to open lines of communication and understanding, and we know that storytelling brings people together. Here's the thing. What we're doing is we are now appealing to the people who are enjoying the stories that we put out and asking them to please value us and show us that they value us by donating.
1: Being a donor makes you part of a bigger movement of storytellers and storytelling podcasts that use stories to help us understand each other. It's like a club, be a part of that club. We have a mission here that we believe in. We're actually storytelling missionaries. We care so much about writing and sharing our stories because we know that writing and sharing our stories helps people come together and it's a worthy mission. And we want you to be a part of it.
0: We get between five and 15,000 listeners per episode.
1: There's that many people out there who have been enjoying this podcast for three years. I didn't think anyone would pay for it from the beginning. But at this point, I'm thinking, all right, we want you to pay for what you value. If you like this podcast, you should pay for it.
0: We think we're worth paying
1: for. Here's your favorite expression. Get off your wallet and support this show that we know you love.
0: Until now, we've just been raising money by teaching classes that normally we would just put in our pockets, but we've been, you know, funneling into this podcast. And we believe that the
1: podcast should pay for itself. We
0: also have big plans.
1: We want to do a whole prison series. Yeah.
0: And we want to take the show on the road. You know, we want to go to different cities and teach classes and, you know, have live shows and stuff. I mean, that's our goal, but...
1: And it would be nice to pay our staff a fair way. And ourselves. I'm saying our staff. Staff, me and you. Including us and our audio producer. Talking
0: about money is awkward, but we need it, and we want to keep this podcast going, and we really hope that you value us enough to go ahead and get on our website and click the donate button and
1: make it happen for us. If you hear these stories and you feel less alone, that's what we're talking about. If that happens to you just the littlest bit, please support us. To the degree that you find us valuable, right? So if you go to the movies
0: and, you know, you pay $14 to go see a movie once a month, maybe send us 14 bucks, right? Yep. If you go get a pizza every week for your whole family, it's 25 bucks. I mean, just, you know, something like that. If you get massages, if you go to spin class, whatever you find, whatever's in your wallet, that you feel that isn't going to make a huge dent, we would like to be considered. I hope you find us valuable. Um, And don't be like me, that person who thinks that everybody else is donating, so I don't have to, and that I click through it. Really, we need you
1: to be the person who supports the things they love and value. So go to Writing Class Radio and hit the Support Us button. I'm Andrea Askowitz, and this is Writing Class Radio, where you'll hear true personal stories from the students in our class and learn a little bit about how to write your own stories. And I'm Allison Langer. Together, we produce
0: this podcast, which is Eagle Parts Heart and Art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. There's no place in the world like writing class. And we want to bring you in. Let's talk about Aaron. I wanted to bring in Aaron Curtis because he is
1: amazing at using the prompts to work out his shit. Here's a prompt response from Aaron Curtis, a student in the class. The prompt was justice.
2: Nothing seems to be hitting in my adult brain. I need the prompts to surprise me into finding something I need to write about. Because otherwise, I'll push every hurt into the ground to pretend everything is fine. I'll write shallow and nothing will be unearthed or worked out. Or I'll turn it into fiction. It's easy to hide the truth in fiction. Justice. I don't want to have a pity party. No one said life was supposed to be fair. But fuck, how many nights did I sleep sitting up at hospital beds when Andy was sick? How often did I clean up vomit? Lug boxes of effluent for her dialysis? switch our diets to whatever she needed to be healthy that month. Look past surgery scars and peritoneal tubes in her stomach and burst veins in her legs to see the beautiful woman she still was. I didn't do those things for cookies or praise. I did them because when you love someone it's what you do. But god damn it. Now I'm facing this autoimmune disorder solo and fuck me if it's not lonely. I'm scared I have no one to share how scared I am with. After taking in Andy's fear of end-stage renal failure, transplant, rejection, and all the times she got sick with infection, seizures when she had an allergic reaction to the meds, fuck. What I put out doesn't seem to have come back. True, I'd hate to see what anyone I'm cooking for would do with this diet, They'd have to want to hardcore lose weight or hate meat or be opposed to processed foods to the point where they want to make it a lifestyle. It's a lot easier planning the week for one. Imagine Becky trying to adjust her tastes to me. No, that was my job, tailoring my life to suit her needs. I never addressed how much space her anxiety and depression took up in our relationship. I'd take days off to be with her, calling in sick when she couldn't get out of bed because life was too much for her. I shouldered the emotional load for two. It was fucking exhausting. Not a physical ailment I'm nursing her through, but a mental one. Now, who's nursing me? Me. I'm all I've got. I better keep a close eye on me, make sure I'm not forgetting someone, make sure I remember to sleep, take my pills, exercise. The end.
0: that was Aaron Curtis working out his shit through writing. Aaron's going through a second divorce. It doesn't really matter what the prompt is. If there's something on your mind, it's usually going to come out in writing
1: class. This is our 50th episode and our last episode of season five. Today, we're talking about omitting needless words because who has time For people to go on and on and on and on. Well, it's funny
0: that we would be talking about this because in class, we're always asking for more. What do we want to know more about? Right. (laughs) I know. Everyone in class is always like, "Ah, you asked for more. And then I'm like, cut that. Yeah. So, (laughs) but it's funny because as we're writing, we're trying to figure out why we're writing this. Right. Mm -hmm. So we keep putting in information. And when we get to the very end, we're hopefully have figured out why. Now we've got to go back and get rid of all
1: the excess that doesn't belong in this story. I feel like omitting needless words is like, I just love that concept. Because a story that is written and published is crafted. It's a piece of art. I always talk about it as art. And I know you're like, you're so goofy about the art. But it
0: is. Well, I, I have a very simple brain. And if there's too much information, I'm like, wait, am I supposed to pay attention to that or this? So I think getting out all the unnecessary tangents helps me understand better and
1: stay focused on the things that matter. Exactly. Less is more in a story. Who was that guy who said, um, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long letter? Yeah. I and that's Orson Wells. No, who is- was it? <laughs> it <Shoot>. wasn't.
0: <laughs> um, no, wait. It was. Um- oh, shit. Oh, yeah, it was. I, I think it's um, somebody sent us an email. It, it's this Pascal, Blaise Pascal. He's a French mathematician, and he said, I have made this letter longer than usual because I lack the time to
1: make it shorter. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Omit needless words. <laughs> it's much harder to write succinctly than to just go on and on and on. And it's our job as writers to bring only what's necessary in a story. I like thinking about it, like, the way we just talked about it in terms of, like, the whole story. So sometimes there's, like, huge tangents. And we're going to show you these tangents. We're going to – oh, I'm Uh. so excited for this episode because we're going to show you Allison's examples of writing tangents that really weren't necessary for the story. So that's the macro level. But there's also a micro level of thinking about omitting needless words. And that is sentence level. Mm -hmm. I get – like a huge thrill (laughs) I do I get a thrill out of sentences that are really tight so Allison wrote a story called why I decided to ignore the judgy snobs like me and have my babies on my own the story was published in the Washington Post August 31st 2018 if you want to check it out Um, she's going to read her story and then after we're going to talk about how she got her story into shape and how the story lost 1500 words Next up, a word from our sponsors. We're back. This is Andrea Askowitz, and this is Writing Class Radio. All right. So let's get to – so we have a great story that got chopped in half. All right. Here goes.
0: When I turned 36, my best friend, Galia, who was married with three kids, said, I should have a child on my own. I'd been complaining about unavailable men and time running out, She reminded me of the one woman we knew in our town who had a baby on her own. That's not for me, I said. When I was in high school, I never had a doubt I would have the perfect husband and two children who looked just like us. I was definitely not that girl who has a baby alone. But as I got older, and either I didn't like the guy or the guy didn't like me, I began to wonder if I'd end up alone and childless. At 34, I considered Match.com. But it was 2002, and online dating still felt pathetic, even dangerous. I went on a handful of dates, but I didn't meet anyone I wanted to see again. Gallia suggested I go to Starbucks every morning at the same time. I'm a coffee-on-the-couch girl, in PJs with two graham crackers and nobody around. But I tried it. After three weeks and $60 less in my wallet, I gave up. Gallia suggested I train for a triathlon to meet athletic men. For months, I got up at 5 a.m. to swim, bike, and run. I met nobody. One day, I was on the driving range, and there was a guy wearing a Greensboro Fire Department t-shirt and surf shorts. He was tall, with ripped, rugged good looks. As he approached, I said, you look like you're looking for trouble. He laughed. I'm Frank. There was something about him that seemed familiar that went beyond his wavy blonde hair and mischievous green eyes. It turned out we had a friend in common. We spent the next day on our friend's boat, wrapped around each other. We didn't separate until he left town the following day. For weeks after, we talked on the phone and I fell insanely hard. After four weeks, I went to Greensboro to visit Frank. The day after I arrived, we played tennis. I was sure there had never been so much electricity on a tennis court. The next day, I met his daughter and envisioned driving her to first grade, preparing dinner for the family, kissing her goodnight. That night, I told him I loved him. I told him I'd never felt this way before. I told him I never wanted to leave and that I wanted kids. Soon. Two weeks later, he bailed. Gallia showed up at my house with a bottle of wine and a phone number. Gallia's a matchmaker, so I thought she was trying to help me get over Frank by introducing me to somebody else. She wasn't. She knew how much I wanted to be a mom. She said, it's time to call Dr. Thompson. She's a fertility specialist. I told you, I said, that's not for me. I want a husband, a dad for my kids. Gallia said, you're 36. I said, having a child without a husband is for losers. I still have time. Even if you fall in love tomorrow, she said, it'll take time for the relationship to develop, to get married and have a child. And if the relationship doesn't work out, you'll be older and less fertile. Whatever, I said, shrugging her off. You want to have the same conversation at 40? Don't be so judgy. Why do you care what people think? I laughed, feeling the effects of the wine, knowing she knew me better than anyone. Why do I care so much? Do you really want to miss having a child because you're too afraid people will think that cute girl from high school is a loser? The more we drank and talked, the more I realized I wasn't willing to gamble. I needed to do this now. By the time the wine was gone, I agreed to meet Dr. Thompson. Three days later, I walked out of Dr. Thompson's office with a link to the California Cryobank and a protocol for my first insemination. The California Cryobank has a website that filters the donor search. I checked the boxes as if I were choosing Frank. Six one one eighty five. 185 Blonde, fair skin, green eyes. The donor selection process got me even more excited about having a baby. I envisioned the men as I read their profiles. I started to care less and less about what people would say. I began to admire women who take control of their lives and who ignored the judgmental snobs like me. I read 27 profiles looking for the one. Nobody stood out, nobody was frank. At one point, I called the cryobank to find out if they had any tennis players. The receptionist said, We don't filter for tennis. Click. Then I found him. He was from California. 6'3", 185, fair-skinned, and green eyes. He didn't play tennis, but he loved to surf and swim. His favorite subject was English. Under staff comments, it said, The entire staff looks forward to seeing him. They said he made them laugh, was humble, kind and easy to be around. I bought 10 vials for $350 each. A month later, I was inseminated. The first insemination didn't take. Dr. Thompson said it's only a 25% chance, just like sex. The second insemination resulted in an ectopic pregnancy, which felt like a sword fight in my belly. I was rushed into surgery. When I woke up, the embryo was gone. After the ectopic, I cried a lot and felt sorry for myself. I can't find a husband, now this. I was angry at the world, mad at my friends with husbands and babies, and irate. I had to wait three months before I could try again. Dr. Thompson suggested in vitro fertilization. IVF bypasses the fallopian tubes, which in my case were clogged. IVF costs $12,000, 12 times more expensive than insemination. But I was determined to have a baby. Six weeks and many invasive procedures later, Gallie and I sat in the office waiting room, afraid to be too confident, but sure I'd been through enough. Today was my day. I tapped my foot on the floor, twirled my hair, and pretended to read a parenting magazine. As we walked to Dr. Thompson's office, I took deep breaths. I glanced at the walls, pictures of babies. My baby will be up there soon. Dr. Thompson stood when I walked in, her face lit up. Congratulations, you're pregnant. Over the years, Dr. Thompson would say that two more times. Now, my kids are 8, 11, and 13. I used every last vial of sperm. They're playing in the backyard outside my office window. The slip and slides are out, two hoses going strong. They are loud, and I've heard them drop the F word about 30 times. I'm tempted to shut down their language, but they're laughing and sliding and getting along. Nobody has picked up a decaying mango and pegged a sibling, yet. (laughs) My daughter's wearing her new blue and pink bathing suit. She has blue eyes, blonde hair, is tall, lean, and athletic. Having two brothers has made her resilient. My oldest son looks just like her. Same body, same hair, same eyes. People say they look like me. He loves golf. Neither loves tennis. My little guy has reddish blonde hair, green eyes, and is covered in freckles. The only sport he likes is walking with his mom so he can be alone with me. He also likes art and gets in trouble for his bad temper, just like I did. He often asks my male friends to be his dad. I cringe, knowing I'm able to give him everything else but that. As the kids towel off, they argue about who has to clean up. They're hungry, want dinner, and are already fighting about who gets to sit next to me on the couch. It's only me. Still, only me. I'm 50. I imagine there would be a man in my life by now. There have been visitors, but nobody permanent to co-parent with. When I reveal my situation to other moms, they say, good for you, or I wish I'd done that. I smile, feeling admired, not condemned. Later, I get a call. Hey, will you talk to my sister? She's 39 and single and wants a baby. I get this call all the time. Galia's is divorced now and dating online. We often wonder why we can't find love if we're too difficult, too old, too picky, or if there are any available great men. I think about how different my life would be without my three kids, and I'm grateful I did more than wonder. Good God. There's a couple things that the Washington Post put in that aren't necessarily my style, right? Minor um, changes. So you can't cuss. You can't refer
1: to sex that much, you know. But that's not really what we're talking about today on this episode. We're okay. talking about omitting needless words and staying true to what the original story or what the story became. I feel like it's become very clear what the story is about. And it's, it's in the title. It's how this narrator, Allison Langer, got over being a judgy bitch and went for it alone. And she had all these notions about what it meant to be a single mom, which was loser. The moment that I thought was the pivotal moment in the story was, um. We read this line again? It was, um. I started to admire women. I started to care less and
0: less about what people would say. I began to admire women who take control of their lives and who
1: ignored the judgmental snobs like me. There was a real moment of change. There was like a moment of empowerment. That's what this story is about. The very original story had a lot, lot, lot more about the process. And I thought that this was a great balance of process. Like, we did learn what IVF is. We learned a little bit about picking a donor, what that is like. We learned a little bit about this narrator's past love life. And, oh, that scene telling Frank, like, I, I want to have a baby soon. Ugh, I know. That's heartbreaking. That's well, so it's just, sweet and ugh. vulnerable. And I love it. So when I first read it
0: in class, they were like, well, tell us more about you and Frank, right? So I got into, I wrote this whole thing about how I had been in tennis matches before because I wanted to show how much tennis means to me in my life, you know? So, and then I had met all these people, but I had never, you know, all that. And then um, I was losing hope until I met him.
1: Um, Right. And what what would I say? Who cares about tennis? You probably, (laughs) and then why um, do we care that you're a tennis player now? We don't care. And and I wanted to say that like the person we knew was
0: this guy's Frank's brother, and so I wanted to bring in that relationship and how we knew each other. And the lady was like, "Cut, no, No. yeah, nobody, we (laughs) we don't need that." And then what happened when I was there in Greensboro about like you know what we traded Brussels sprout recipes and you know how a lot about
1: our (laughs) our relationship. (laughs) Cut, cut, cut. Right. Yeah. We took long walks in the woods. Cut. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Goodbye. There goes my whole relationship. Right. You're exactly because your relationship needed to boil down to. I want to have kids soon. See ya. That's all you needed. And then, of course, the donor process was just, I thought, like, so
0: interesting. (laughs) And I sent the piece to you and I go, I can't cut another
1: word. And you're like, cut, cut, cut. Okay, so Allison has this piece. It's 3,000 words. And the editor at the Washington Post was like, I love this piece. It has to be 1,500 words. And then what'd you do? You cut 300 words. You still have to lose, you know, whatever, 1,300 words. So I was like, hand it over. And I do want to tell you this. When I first read this story, I was bored by it. It was not my favorite story of yours. Because I didn't care about... You know why you don't care? Because I already know this story? You have done the same thing. But I would still care. I mean, lots of people love to be reflected back in other stories. It was bogged down with the other shit that I read, <sighs> read. What read. Read what... Okay. So then, wait. But I do want to say that I slashed and burned it to 1,500 words and it got published
0: the next day. Okay, I. it says the donor selection process got me excited about having a baby. And then all this is in there was, and then I'm going to tell you what you put in its place. There are filters for hair, texture, blood type, education level, areas of study, and religion. Today, you can filter for lookalikes. A few days ago, I studied the list. I, looked, oh, yeah. <laughs> I love the lookalike part. A few days ago, I studied the list. I looked for Brad... Brad Pitt, but the closest Brad was Bradley Cooper, a great option. (laughs) Better, actually. I saw Andre Agassi, Bill Gates, Benjamin Bratt, and their sperm cost $795. If you don't mind your baby looking like Chris Noth from Sex and the City, you can save a few hundred. Chris Noth, look-alike received a degree in psychology, then went into teaching. Okay, so if
1: this was a story about um, how funny it is to be picking a donor online and how you can choose what the donor looks like and how if you are okay with a not-so-cute donor, it's cheaper... Then okay, yeah, but
0: okay. So I I hear what you're saying, but also it tells the the reader what an actual process like how because people are like, well, what did you find out about donors? What do you get to know? What do you not know? So I was told
1: us you gave us a really good succinct list. There you said. You picked, oh, and you did it really well in the ultimate version, which was you were looking for a donor that reminded you of Frank. Right. That's all we need to know. We don't care about right. sex in the city, guy. Shh. Like, who okay. cares? Okay.
0: Anyway, you cross it all out and you put, I envisioned the men as I read their profiles. That's tell, not show.
1: Okay. Enough. All right. So okay.
0: that's what I'm saying. But but the point is, is that's that. That's a
1: pretty good line. Yeah. Oh, Jesus.
0: Okay, wait. So here's another thing I wanted to keep that you slashed. Oh, yeah. So start here. I bought the book Single Mothers by Choice and skipped to the chapter called Daddy Issues that included a section on what to say to people who said, aren't you even a little concerned about bringing a child into the world without a father? Of course I was. My dad's the most important in my life. Not being able to give my child a dad was heartbreaking, but I didn't think it was wrong. Okay, so that whole thing got cut out. And then if you and go I, down I, and you look at the comments, they're like, what's wrong with this lady? She's not even. She doesn't care that there's no
1: dad. The story isn't about dad. It's not a discussion on, is a two-parent family better than a one-parent family? Does a kid need a dad? Like, it's just not about that. It's about getting over the judgment and doing it yourself. And then the whole part about my mom. I mean, if this were a book and we had a lot of space and time... Yeah. I do think it is interesting because there are – and that's the, that's the whole point. That's the whole kind of difficulty in editing. It's not like any of these parts were um, not important or interesting a little bit, but they weren't essential to the ultimate story. When the paper came back and it
0: was all my good stuff was gone, <laughs> I, I was like, fuck her. Often, when we receive big edits of things in our life that mattered so much and were so traumatic, it's very hard to let them go. Because the person who wrote the story
1: thinks every detail
0: is so important. Don't trust yourself. (laughs) Trust your editor. You have to have a friend or an editor that's willing to listen, willing to hear, because it's almost too hard sometimes for us to see it and do it by ourselves. I'm glad to have been the guinea pig here.
1: Um, (laughs) Thank you for listening. Yeah. And thank you, Allison. for sharing your story. Thank you, Aaron Curtis. You rock. Writing Class Radio
0: is produced by Virginia Laura, Andrea Asquitz, and me, Allison Langer. Theme music by Ari Herstand. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by and recorded at The Launchpad at the University of Miami. This episode is sponsored by 88 Cups of Tea and by the Sanibel Island Writers' Conference. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, stories to study, and editing resources. If you love this show and enjoy all the extras on our website, hit the support us button.
1: We can't do it without you. We're serious about that, guys. Support <laughs> Writing Class Radio. please. If you go appreciate. to a movie once a week, that's $10 times 12 a $120, we'll take it. Yeah.
0: Treat us like your movie. A new episode will drop the first Wednesday of every month. So look for us. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours?
1: What happens when we play outside?
0: We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect